welcome to the podcast about interesting, everyday people. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman, and this is Podzo One. Mohammed Saeed served as an interpreter for the U.S. Army for seven and a half years throughout the Iraq War. Born in Najaf, Iraq, Mohammed moved around the country during his upbringing before eventually following his younger brother's lead in becoming a translator. After his years of service, he was able to leave for the United States in 2012 and became a citizen in 2018. He now happily lives and works as a salesman in Williamsburg, Virginia. Muhammad talks to us about his journey, his perspective on the Sunni and Shi'i religious sects, the Kurdish people, the war, Saddam Hussein, judo, of which he is a black belt, and other elements of Iraqi culture and history. So here is Muhammad Saeed. Muhammad Saeed, welcome to Potza One. Glad to have you you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. We're excited to talk to you. It's a pleasure. So, Muhammad. uh, Go ahead, Daniel. Okay. um, Muhammad, um, you uh, were born in Iraq, right? Yes, sir. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, just growing up, uh, which city you grew up in and, and what it was like to grow up there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was born in a city called uh, Najaf. Najaf is, uh, I would say, like 100 miles south of Iraq, which is the center for the Shi'is. Like, you know, Islam is two sects, like Shi'is and Sunnis. So the center of Shi'is, the leader of all Shi'is in the world, it's in Najaf area. And that's where I grew up. However, my father, he wasn't really a religious. So uh, I, I grew up in a home environment when... Uh, Nobody really pushed the religion idea. I mean, you're going to have to go and get up and go to the mosque. They, they don't do that. So uh, that, that's how I, my environment growing in Najaf. And when I was somewhere between 10 to 12 years, uh, we moved from Najaf to uh, Kirkuk, which is very far north in Iraq, where the Kurdish people there. And uh, that was... a. Uh, that was a good experience. I met uh, a, a different kind of people. Uh, uh, Kurdish people are amazing people. Uh, they they are like good friends material in them. And uh, uh, I stayed there, I would say, roughly six, seven years. And then we went back to Babylon. And that's how we started. So, so, uh, yeah, so Mohammed, there's Najaf on on. You can see on the screen there. So you were well south of Baghdad growing up, and then you moved up north to where? Kirkuk? To Kirkuk. Yes, yeah, so yeah, you, you were up here. I and, thought I lost you for a minute when the screen changed. So. Yeah, sorry. I should have warned you <laughs> I was doing that. Yeah. So Kirkuk, it's uh, somewhere in the Kurdish area. I would say yeah. like 200 miles north of Baghdad. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. How, how old were you when, when you went to Kirkuk? Uh, I will say somewhere around like 12 years old. Uh, man, that's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah she- I, 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 was, I was like uh, 12. I just went to the middle school there. Uh, yeah, that's where I started in Kirkuk and stayed there for like, uh, I would say like six, seven years roughly. And you, you have memories of uh, being in the Joff, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us what it was like uh, growing up, or at least the first 12 years in the, in the Joff. I mean, as, as a kid, I don't really get in touch with the society in general. I mean, I'm still with my own small society, friends, school, and 
home environment. But uh, it, it, it was really fine. I mean, we, we have our uh, childhood games. We make our own toys and play with it. Uh, mostly soccer out there. Uh, I always noticed at that time I, I want to grow up and be some kind of athlete and do, do some different, you know. And uh, at that time, uh, I never really had that much chances. I'm still young. So uh, by the time I reached the age of being more active, more open to people, we moved from Medjaf. So we went to Kirkuk. And that's where was, uh, I would say, like somewhere in the 90s, where uh, uh, there is a huge impact, I think 90 or 91, when there is uh, uh, the first Kuwait war happened. Uh, I mean, I would try to avoid to talk about politics, but Saddam's army went south to Kuwait and the uh, coalition forces come over and they just helped the Kuwaiti to control their country. And that was a chaotic time. So all this uh, thing happened like in the political environment, I was just being kid in Kirkuk and just watching people and listening to the old people talking about the news. Saddam made a mistake and it's a stupid move to do. So, uh, and from there, I spent a year out of the school because at that time the, the schools did not open. Mm. So, yeah, and uh, that's, that's how I end up, uh, I would say, like somewhere around uh, 14 years old. I, I started working. I get into the manhood. You want to be a man and working and a provider type of thing. So that's that's where I started working in the slaughterhouse. Uh, uh, it's run by a Kurdish business actually, and they bring animals and they slaughter them. And that was one of the kid to whole thing up. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. So uh, let's go back to uh, ninety ninety one. You called it the uh, first Kuwait war. Yes, yes, that's. So- uh, so in, in America, we called that uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Desert uh, Storm, you got it. Yes. Sir. Yeah. And so was there a second Kuwait war? Well, yeah, the, the, the Kuwait war is like an, an, an Iraqi perspective. The Kuwait is first Kuwait war, the first Kuwait war, the American command. And the second war is where the American come and took over the country in 2000. Uh, three, roughly, 2003. Yeah, it was yeah, March, of, March of 2003. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's got connected together in the Iraqi perspective. Uh, we look at the war, there's a first war. I mean, the, uh, George Bush, the father, he had an opportunity to take over the country at that time. And uh, it, it, for some reason, they did not do it. So the second war, his son, let's say, finished the job. Yeah, do you, do you think the older Bush should have uh, taken over? In uh, a very different way, I think he should have. He had an opportunity that was like on 1991. Saddam was super weak. Uh, Kurdish people, they used to be kicked out in the north. And that was in that region. So they brought their uh, uh, revolutionary army, let's call them Kurdish. They, they called Peshmerga in, in a Kurdish name, which is uh, revolutionary. So they, they came to Kirkuk, all the way to Kirkuk. So they, they come inside like another 300 miles inside Iraq. People came from other sides. So Saddam was so weak. And it was a good idea to take him down at that time. So when that did not happen, man, he went back and he retaliated for many people. So uh, I wasn't really in the age to watch everything closely and watch the media and see it. But uh, I've, I've seen what he'd done in the street. 
I've, I've seen how get more brutal. Uh, and that's the time where I grew up and I reached my youth time, you know, and everything was more crazy, was more restricted in terms of ID check. There are checkpoints everywhere. You can't go from city to city without going through a checkpoint, like a border point type of thing. They check you, they check your ID, and you feel you are under control all this time. So I think that's how he gets stronger by the time they reach like 2001 and 2002. And it was really hard for the U.S. Army to come through at that time when he was most powerful. Yeah, so when you were moving around as a 13, 14-year-old in Kirkuk, you, you could move around Kirkuk no problem after uh, 91, it sounds like. But if you wanted to go to Erbil or Mosul, you were going to get checked two or three times, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can get checked if you want to go back to Baghdad. I mean, there's always checkpoints everywhere. And, uh, I mean, I, I have some stories about them. I see things. I mean, I was young at that time, and my ID proved I'm not even 18 years old, so I'm not in, in listing age. And that's what they're looking for. They want to make sure everybody's going to the military. If not, they consider you AWOL before even you get enlisted. <laughs> Wow. So you, yeah. you've referenced stories. Tell, tell us a story or two from yeah, your teenage I mean, years. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, w- I was a kid and I was in the, uh, in the bus coming back from Kirkuk to Baghdad. And the trip was to switch buses in Baghdad and go back to Najaf and uh, visit our old relatives and stuff. My grandma was there, actually, God bless her soul. So in my way from Kirkuk to Baghdad, there is a checkpoint and they suspected some wanted name. Now, remember, in Iraq and Kurdish environment as well, people just take a pride of their name and they just rename them. So you will get many people got the same name. And the technology also is not present in at that time. So nobody have a picture or anything. They just needed a name. And there was one Kurdish young man. Uh, he was his name match another name in a wanted list. And uh, they just drag him out like he's been a terrorist at that time. They drag him down. I mean, by, I, I saw them by the time they took him from the bus. Um, I'm sitting in the back. I can see it from the window. They drag him on the ground to the other side. And nobody even talking to him. They just attacking this guy. Basically, they beating him, kicking him for no reason. Later on, now the bus driver, he went forward and he pulled over. He wanted to see... Should he move? Should he wait? He don't know what to do. But he's got a passenger out there. And I will say 30 minutes later, the guy came back. He's like his face uh, bloody and his claws tearing apart. And, uh, and he get into the bus and everybody asked him, what's up? He was like, well, it was a mistake. <laughs> they wanted somebody else. I was like, thank God, let's go. And now everybody get left. So that's, that's one thing you see it when you are, 13, 14 years old, and your first thing come to the kid mind at that time, like, wow, that's one day will be me when I reach his age. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it seems like a, uh, a government that was uh, creating to or enabling a, a culture where that sort of violence was, was normal. Oh, yeah, it was normal. It was normal. When you see it, and I, I was there when I see it when I was a kid, I, I think that's how it works everywhere. And that's how other countries do this. <laughs> and by the time we grow up and we start to gain more knowledge, talking to more people, reading more books, 
we figure out, and I say we, me and my friends and people when I was in the college years, we start talking and we figure out that's something wrong going on here. Yeah, it's, it was, not, it's not, as you know now, since you've lived in this country for eight years, you, you know it's not like mm-hmm. that everywhere. Oh, Did absolutely. You, I, I know not, I know it's wrong when I was there. <laughs> so, Mohammed, did, did you notice uh, anything specifically uh, about, um, like, were the Kurds treated differently at all, or was this really everybody in Iraq? I, I would say, I would say, generally, everybody. We, I mean, everybody would agree that's everybody been treated unfairly, but Kurdish people, they, 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 they reach the media now. Everybody know. All the world know about them. So uh, yes, they they treated unfairly. Uh, they lost their place. He he did a huge displacement. When well, I say he, I'm, I'm referring to Saddam. A huge displacement for Kurdish people to be kicked out of their places, and uh, and and he took over their lands, their properties, and just give it away. And that's the problem there. Uh, when everybody get out of the country and they start talking, so he already lost the battle in an in, in immediate point of view. But everybody else in Iraq, like even Sunnis people from his own town, like people in uh, uh, Tikrit, that's where he born. They, they might appear they've been having special treatment, but they also suffer in their own problem. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, his a tribe is a stronger. His cousin, immediate family members run the town. So everybody else, they have no chances but listen. Do you think that uh, most of the people in the country... Uh, didn't like him at the time, you know, in the nineties as he was gaining power and they, but, but they were just quiet about it or were afraid. Not, nobody liked him. They didn't even like him right now. I mean, even with the huge failure, if you watch the news lately and you see the Iraq as a country is collapsing economically, even on the social level, there are so many militias and people with weapons all over the place, but people still who've been during Saddam's regime who lived there, they still believe whatever we go through, it's way better than Saddam's days. Hmm. Yeah, he, he was a, he was a brutal dictator, right? He was. He was. Yeah, he, he was responsible for uh, countless uh, deaths and, uh, and and beatings and, and just either directly or indirectly. He created a culture and a uh, an environment that was untenable. I, I don't. Yeah. I, I think most people didn't leave Iraq because they didn't have other options. Is that fair to say yes yes yeah, uh, the major, it, I mean, it's a dream for everybody to find a way to leave the country i mean i was uh growing in an environment and i talked to my friends and uh, one of them he was lucky enough and he went to uh amman and jordan and when he came back and he talked about amman for us it was like a huge thing this guy came from jordan like came from another planet <laughs> and <laughs> it, <laughs> It was it was a huge thing. I remember when he was talking and take a pride of his trip, how was the life look like, the buildings, the streets, and we are like, wow, that's what I want to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never been to Amman, but I've heard it's uh, it's an amazing city. I had I had the pleasure to be there in my trip coming to the states. So, <laughs> oh, nice, that's yeah. awesome. Hey, hey, so can you see my cursor, Mohammed? Yes, yes. So, I'm actually on the phone, so it's kind of okay. Uh, got really, it. Yeah. Yeah. So Kirkuk. So. In 1991, the, the Kurds had come all the way down to Kirkuk, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and Erbil and Mosul, Mosul was really like, their, their, they considered that their capital, right? Or they still do. 
now Erbil and Soleimani is their major cities. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But they consider Mosul as a part of their region. Got it. Yeah. And they so it was it was combination of desert and uh, what looks like mountains there as you head towards Turkey. Yes, sir. And Saddam essentially uh, forced them out uh, across the Turkish border, right? Oh, yeah. And some of them, they went out of the country. They went to Iran and all the way to south part of Turkey. They found some refuge there because on that region, there is a Kurdish live there. I mean, uh, Kurdish people uh, story, it's really amazing. If you get a chance to go back to their history, it's the only nation in the world. They never, ever had country. Wow. So we, we have a region that's between Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and even part of Iran. That's all a Kurdish population, but they never, ever had a country. So uh, now they think, uh, and I do believe that's how they think Iraq is their country, which it, it is. I mean, they, they've been there since ever. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the cradle of civilization, right? And the, the Kurds were yeah. there from the beginning. Wow. Yes, sir. That, so yeah, and I think the, um, I think that when, I can't remember when exactly, but sometime in the mid 20th century, I think uh, Britain and some other powerful, uh, some of the superpowers basically carved up uh, a lot of the mis- Middle Eastern countries and said, this country mm-hmm. is this and this country is that. This is Jordan. Um, and I think that mm-hmm. they didn't take into account the fact that there was a culturally distinct people and I, maybe even ethnically mm-hmm. distinct people, the Kurds, and they didn't account for that and, and provide any sort of uh, land or, or country for them. Yeah, they they cut it. I don't know what they call the treaty. I think it's like Belford Treaty or something. Belford. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. The Balfour. Yeah, yeah that reminds, That's the um. That's yeah. the one that's uh that that where they declared that that part of Palestine became Israel. Yeah. Israel. Yeah. Israel. Yeah. Oh no, that's way um, earlier. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so the whole I, idea yeah. is they they try to find a way to create leaders of that region. I mean, uh, and, and historically, Iraq and Syria and Yemen, all this area, it's it's not a country; it's a region. It's all like Arabic Peninsula, and it's all the way you go from Saudi Arabia to Iraq. This is why, if you check the last names, the tribal system, you check their tribe name. Uh, you have the same tribe in Saudi Arabia and in Iraq and in Syria. So uh, the people used to be everywhere, and it's a nomad lifestyle at that time, so they just go wherever the green is. However, when they start cutting the land and making a treaty and try to find leaders in Iraq at that time, after the Ottoman Empire went down, they, uh, they had to bring somebody to Iraq to rule it. So they went to Saudi Arabia. There was a big uh, family, the same Saud family. They, they brought the King Faisal, the first King Faisal. He came and started the Iraq as a, as a country. So, and that was under the uh, uh, British uh, occupation at that time. Sounds like you, uh, were a, you're a history major, Mohammed. Is, is that true? Um, I'm working on it, actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, I'm going to school right now studying history online. Oh, that's awesome. Did you so you went to college in Iraq, right? Yes, sir. Okay. And what what did you study? Yeah. Then? Uh, I, I just want to clear the definition for college here. So Okay. Uh, wh- I, I figured this lately, though. So. so uh going to the college, we call it in Iraq, you go into the an institute, which is really two years after high school, and that's how you get a diploma. 
When I say diploma, it's not a high school diploma. It's a technical diploma after high school level. So there is something between the high school, we have a diploma, and we have uh, uh, the uh, bachelor uh, as a uh, like a college graduate. Yeah. So uh, it's two years after high school, and uh, that's what I went through. I studied general mechanic. Okay. And what? So what when did, you... did you go back? Uh, when did you go back to high school from the? Um... What was it, the, the slaughterhouse that you were working at? Yeah, so uh, I went back to Najaf to live with my grandma for a while. And uh, I missed a school year. I wasn't like last year in the middle of school at that time. And then we recoup and just managed to be in a high school there. And then we all moved to Babylon. And uh, that's where... Uh, uh, it's a small town, if you can find it on the map, it's Alexandria. Uh, and that's that's where I went to the high school there. Okay, you mean look up, then, I'll look up Alexandria. Yeah. It's like 50 miles south of Baghdad. Is it um, like in Egypt they call it Al-Iskandaria? Is it the exactly. same pronunciation? Al- yeah, Al-Iskandaria, yeah. <clears throat> oh, very cool. I didn't know there was one in Iraq. Uh, there's one everywhere, my friend. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was busy at that time. <laughs> Alexander the Great. Yes, he, he got around. No yeah. question. <laughs> so you're uh, learning, yeah. you're getting a degree in history uh, online? Yes. Is there a focus of the history or is it more international? Uh, I recently switched to the history for concentration on Middle East. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we're talking to the right guy. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm not that qualified to talk about the history. I'm going to tell you what I know. And if well, I'm wrong, a disclaimer, I apologize in advance. You, you, well, you, you are from Iraq and you are studying Middle East yeah. history. So you have Daniel and me beat, no, no question. Absolutely. Yeah, so, it's fascinating to hear about the, uh, like, the difference between the, the tribal, the way that the people would be nomadic and tribal. Uh, and then suddenly having to be, be start acting like countries and nations like the, you know, the Western world. Yeah. Uh, so. So in March 03, where were you, Mohammed? March 03? Yeah. I was in Alexandria, actually. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, 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 I, so when the invasion was, I was, came, <clears throat> you were in, I, I would say Alexandria. I can't say it the way you're yeah. saying it. Yeah, Alexandria. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. I, I, I would love to say it the way you're saying it. Yeah. Uh, so you were there when the U.S. invaded? Yes, sir. So tell us what that experience was like. Did you know it was coming? Did it surprise you? And what the first few days were like uh, during the invasion? I, I would say subconsciously, many people think that the U.S. Army is not going to advance because of the previous experience in the Kuwait War, the Desert Storm, just to your point, uh, people people thought it's going to be like one push to Basra maybe, and it's going to stop there. So till the moment they moved by my house, I see the troops going through. We still don't believe they are here. I mean, we still <laughs> have the doubt there is a big chance they might come up to deal with Saddam. So maybe they create some kind of a treaty or something, they back up. So people don't really feel it's the end yet. <laughs> yeah, and Basra is all the way, you can see my cursor, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's way to the uh, southeast part of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Wow. And, and that's that's basically the the land way for them to come from Kuwait to Basra and just go across and uh, and and it, it was really easy war for the US Army at that time. Yeah, and they came up yeah. what what is considered I, I guess you would call that Route One. Uh, I don't know which one you're signing on, but uh, well, that's that's basically the main street connecting all the south uh, province to Baghdad. Yeah. Gotcha. And then you you were over here to the the west of Route One, but I'm, it sounds like the troops kind of uh, fanned out and went all over mm-hmm. the place on the way to Baghdad. Oh, I watched them coming by. I watched them coming by, and I was terrified. Were they coming by in tanks or were they coming by in jeeps? Uh, well, later on, I found out they called them Humvees. Ah, uh, yeah, nice. <laughs> yes, you have quite a bit of experience with Humvees. Yeah, at that time, we called them Jeep for real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, so, what, uh, what made you terrified when you saw them going by? So, uh, I mean, I told you our experience with the military enforcement, and they always force checkpoints, all this stuff. So dealing with the military is not my favorite thing at all. At that time, I was walking from uh, uh, Alexandria to an area called Musayab. Musayab, it's, it's like another 20 miles. So uh, we kind of stuck in Musayab area, and nobody wanted to pick us up. The U.S. Army come in, and that's the chaos. So I was there out of my town when things happened. Now I have to walk all the way to Alexandria. And uh, as I'm walking, I saw the troop coming by, and as they are just first time they touch the ground, it's 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 a lot for them. So they had to point their weapons, make sure they are safe. And that's first time in my life I raised my hand this way. <laughs> yeah. I raised my hand, and everybody else just to show them we don't have weapons, and they just pass by. They are they are on their tanks and Humvees. We didn't really uh, interact with them. And you were in your early twenties then. Uh, well, I born in 1977. Till that time, I will say okay. like late 20s. Yeah, yeah, mid to late 20s. Mm. Wow. So you ended up uh, being in Baghdad about a year later, right? Roughly a year later. Uh, yeah, same year actually. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. So uh, by the end of 2003, they started to uh, after everything like. Collapse. They took over the country, and the U.S. Army prevailed. They started to rebuild the U.S. Uh, the Iraqi Army, but they can't call it Iraqi Army. They call it, they call it Iraqi Civil Force. Mm. And uh, and there is a job opportunity for me. I was like, awesome. Let's go and apply for it. So I went back to their big place. There is a uh, area in uh, Musayab. I don't remember what they call the camp there. It's, it's a U.S. camp. They settled down there and they start bringing people to train them. So I was one of the trainees who actually talking to the U.S. Army there. And uh, they teaching me how to be, uh, it's like a similar course. It's like, what do we have here in the state? We have uh, like a National Guard type of thing. That's the Iraqi civil force. They, they just wanted to do it this way. Like an Iraqi National Guard, in a way. Right. And you, when did you start learning English? Well, I was in a college, and uh, my school was all in English. Uh, I mean, uh, I studied mechanic, math, English language as a minor there. 
But uh, I didn't really know I can speak English. I mean, I can read, I can watch movies, <laughs> but I can't, I never try to speak till I'm on the spot and there's people around me and I had, uh, I had to say something. <laughs> and you were applying for an interpreter job or you were applying for something else? No, I was applying to be part of the Iraqi civil force. Oh, part of the civil yeah. force. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And uh, they got me there for uh, three days of training, basically, in the class of training. They took us to the range. And uh, three, throughout these three days, uh, I started to interact with them, talk to them, and they found out I can speak good, roughly have English. So uh, they needed me to talk to other people. And uh, one of them, he said something. He was like, would you consider to be an interpreter? I was like, well, I'm not sure I can fill that shoes, so I'm, I'm going to pass. I'm going to stay for the Iraqi civil force. <laughs> and uh, I, I just refused the opportunity there, which it was a mistake of mine. So how long were you in the Iraqi civil force? Uh, three days. We finished the training, we went home, and we done. That's it. Oh, that was it? <laughs> that was it. We never get hired anymore. So what happened is the U.S. Army trained people, get them ready, and they sent them to the... Iraqi local government that's newly established and it's chaotic so they don't know what to do with us they will just go home I mean like who's gonna pay you I mean nobody will pay you <laughs> why you are here anyway <laughs> right so after three days of training I went back to uh, Alexandria uh, like a local government and that's what they advised me just go home so I went home and uh, at that time I was uh, I was coaching judo in uh, uh, Alexandria. Oh, you're a judoka? Uh, yes, I'm a judo. <laughs> I'm a judo fan, let's say it this way. So I was, uh, uh, I skipped that part when I was talking about myself. When we went to Babylon, Alexandria, part of it, I got into the judo when I was like 16 years old. And I stuck with it till the end, till I left the country. So wow, you did it for a, long, done it that was a long time, yeah. It was a long time. That's where I uh, went to the high school. I finished my college there. I, I even got a job there working for the military industry. Uh, so are you a black belt in judo? Yes, sir, I am. All right, very cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you were back home. Uh, you had been told that just, you had just been sent home by the ICF because of all the chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you do? I, I went back and teaching judo and... Uh, just to try to move on with my life. At that time, I was, uh, I was working for the Iraqi military industry as a warehouse manager there. And uh, when the war happened, the whole establishment collapsed, but we're still receiving a paycheck. I mean, it's a small amount of money, but I'm receiving a paycheck. So for me, it wasn't like the end of the world. I was uh, trying to advance myself, get a job, but uh, at that time, I was like, all right, this one didn't work. I'm going to just start receiving my paycheck from the government, keep doing my judo, and see my next call. And uh, that's, that's how I ended up being an interpreter, actually. Hey, so, Mohan, before we get to you becoming an yeah. interpreter, uh, I don't know anything about judo. Daniel's into jujitsu. They, yeah. they, just, they just sound like foreign uh, concepts to me uh, oh, they are cousins <laughs> they are similar it sounds like yeah is there, is there more striking in judo than in no uh, judo is a wrestling it's a wrestling like like a, a japanese style wrestling really 
I would say it's closer to Romanian wrestling with the different uniform. Okay. Yeah. So uh, uh, judo is most common. It's one of the mother arts there, really, in the, in the martial art. So, so Daniel's about 5'10", 155 pounds. You'd have no problem with him, right? I think he'll, he'll have no problem with me because now I'm 250, so he's winning. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, Daniel. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I haven't done a lot of judo, but I've heard that it's uh, one of the things about it is it, it puts a lot of emphasis on achieving as much as you can with as little yes. effort as possible. And you, you using like the balance and the weight of your body to perform takedowns. Uh, and it's, it, yeah, there's an economy of movement involved, which I always yeah. thought was really cool. It, it's, it's really science and it's easy science. And I always been in love with the, my school classes. I like physics and I uh, like math at that time. And I found the judo, it's really incorporated the physics and math, and math, I'm sorry with the uh, like fight art and basically is the whole idea is to be the most gentle person who won the fight if that makes sense to you <laughs> but where there is yeah. a moment to be uh, more like creating some kind of force or something it's it always available for you so who's the one who take mm -hmm. control the one who more stable that makes sense right yeah are you are, do you have you done judo since you left iraq I tried, but I uh, really never had time for it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I tried. I met a group here in Williamsburg and awesome people. They are all uh, judo experts. I stayed with them for a couple of days, but I couldn't really keep up with them due to my schedule and jumping from work to work. I want to find my place here. So uh, I, I gave the priority to get a, get a real job. <laughs> no, I, I, I understand. <laughs> it's a choice everybody has to make. <laughs> cool. So tell us how you became an interpreter. So uh, my younger brother, actually, his name Mohsen, uh, he's he's amazing, man. He he listened to that advice when somebody told us to you can be a translator. So he went uh, he went to the green zone. It was open door. Anybody can go to the green zone. By the way, at that time, as they just established it, and uh, he walks in. He found the company called Titan, and uh, passed the test. They hire him on the spot, and he did the job for a couple months. And uh, one of his days off, he came over home and he was like, man, I've been there. I know what you can do. It's time for you just to step up and move forward with it. So I, I give it to him. With, <laughs> if it's not for Mosin, I would never step that step and be translator. So I uh, went with him. I went to Titan. I passed the test. And uh, apparently, based on their standards, they found out I can, I have a good score in the test but I can't talk to people. <laughs> so they were like, you, you, you will be more suitable for an office job. So they tried to find an office job, something you can write and read. Uh, they couldn't find it. They, they, sold me to, they sent me to a place in Baghdad, Dora, uh, the Falcon there, the, the FAP name. Yeah, right FAP there. Falcon, yeah. So uh, at that place, I stayed for a couple months. And then one day I was in the green zone to sign up my uh, timesheet. And uh, somebody showed up and he was like, uh, would you like to work with us? We do have a place for you to do an office job and all stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I worked with them for a couple months. And later on, I been recruited to go to Fallujah. And then uh, what is the uh, green zone for those of us that weren't there? 
a, a green zone is like uh, they wanted to establish a place after where bad things start happen and there is a small movement people are protesting explosion here shot there now the US army actually come up with the idea to create some uh, 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 a safe area for later on they call it the international zone so the green zone is the most protected area in the middle of Baghdad and that's where Saddam's balances there have been uh, uh, what else we have there uh, the, the US embassy took a place right now uh, and uh, there is so so good places for the Saddam's group like the uh, ministers the leaders they all live there in huge mansions so what the US army did is really surrounded the area with the concrete and uh, created a safe area and they put the checkpoints and make sure this area will be like violent free basically and that's where titan was inside that area yeah there there were several uh countries that had their embassies in there mm-hmm. and then yeah if you were a big contractor you tended to be centered in the green zone because to your point it was safe from just about everything except mortars and rockets yeah yeah and everybody yeah. everything else you can call it a red zone right not, yeah, not that's exaggeration right. yeah yeah very wow. so you ended up uh t- tell us about how you ended up in Fallujah yeah so I was uh jumping from a place to place as a translator wherever they want me I'll be there I mean I really enjoyed it I love learning more, talking to people more, made some friends. And uh, I ended up in the green zone, uh, working in a place in, uh, uh, I, I think it was uh, National Guards, there, the U.S. National Guards. And uh, we go do patrols in Baghdad area, which I really love these places. Go to uh, Saddam's son, Oday, he has uh, some good places, like his own uh, sport club or something and uh, that's where he keep his best horses so that was that was my daily job just go there and play with the horses talk to people so i i loved it later on somebody showed up in my office and he said they needed people in fallujah and uh, they needed somebody who can read and write because uh, we have a problem to get people who can actually write or read documents and uh, he offered me a good paycheck i was like all right i'm sold so I, I went there, but I don't know what I'm walking into. So that's what I realized paycheck is not really a reason. <laughs> I went to Fallujah and uh, the war started. They just stopped everything and I ended up going in the field. And at that time, I mean, it's, it's been a preparation to push it through Fallujah. Later on, I understood what happened. The U.S. Army was out of Fallujah, leaving Fallujah free area. That's where the bad guys start to create, like a creative vacuum for them. So all the bad guys went to Fallujah. That's where they start their activities. And then the U.S. Army surrounded the area and pushed it through it. And it was, it was a brutal, but it was also a win for the U.S. Army. So that's where I start to, from beginning to end with them. Uh, that's in general. Other than that, I really can't go through the details, like what unit I worked with or what I did. No, I t- totally understand. So you yeah. were there... You you went to Fallujah in early '04, and you didn't leave until late 2011, right? Uh, 2008, actually, I left. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I and left then, 2008. So you were there for four four plus years. Yes, sir. 
And, and uh, on this time, I, I couldn't leave the area. I couldn't leave Fallujah camp. I just stayed there with them. So I go out of the camp, do my job, but I come back to the camp and I stay there. I don't take days off. Yeah, so seven days a week, mm-hmm. 12 months a year, you, you are dedicated to helping the U.S. Uh, and it sounds like the Army. You were with the U.S. Army? It, it, it was, sounds like this, but I'm still considered civilian. So I have to get my badge with me all the time. I have to explain to people who I am, who I work with. But after all, uh, I, I, made some, uh, I'm, I met some great people there. That's how I learned more about the language, U.S. culture. I mean, coming to the States at that time is not even an idea. I have no idea I will end up here one day. But uh, I was just talking to people. I think it's fascinating, the difference in the culture. I, I love the sight there when you see people, different colors, different background, and they all together wearing the same uniform. I mean, that's, that's where I want to be. I, I just like it. Yeah, it's pretty cool when that comes together and everybody has a, a common yeah. purpose and everybody's being uh, extremely considerate of their, uh, their fellow teammate and fellow soldier. Yeah, it's pretty neat stuff. It's, it's, it's amazing. I've, I've seen it in the camp. I've seen it when I talk to them. I mean, I, I can tell the personality is different, but we all on one side. And it, it, was, it was amazing side. And I, I really hope everybody think this way and see the value of being different. It's amazing. It, it is really cool. Daniel yeah. and I kind of have yeah. that as part of this podcast. We mm-hmm. uh, we mm-hmm. love learning different stories, and mm-hmm. we don't care what your background is and mm-hmm. what you look like, mm-hmm. but uh, we mm-hmm. we are interested in your story. Mm-hmm. I, I wish we could get into some detail about your your four plus years in Fallujah, but I understand uh, you you want to protect folks, and and I yeah I appreciate. I mean, that. I I don't know if you recall I I mentioned earlier I don't. I, I did not sign a paper or something or a disclaimer, but uh, out of respect for people who fought with us, people we lost, people come back home, all of them, anybody of them will hear this. They know how much I respect them. I'm not going to talk about details, but all I say, I appreciate everybody I worked with. Yeah, and I'm sure they appreciate you too, because uh, you were clearly de- dedicated to what the American uh, military was trying to do over there. So where did you go after... Uh, after 08 or in 08? Uh, I went back to Baghdad, actually, and uh, the, the Green Zone, they, they switched companies. So it was uh, Titan, and there is another company takeover, uh, GLS, I think. And uh, they just, like, preset everything all over again. And I was there, and they told me, well, if you want, we can have you relocated here in Baghdad. And uh, I liked the idea. I was like, dude, I'm tired of being in Fallujah. I've been moving target for a while. <laughs> so, so I wanted to be a stationary target. <laughs> I ended up in, uh, uh, in Baghdad working uh, with the different unit. And uh, from there, uh, I stayed with them for like six months. Do the same thing, patrolling, talking to people. My job always been uh, the friendly side, the good build a relationship between the U.S. military and the locals and uh, try to move things around. But uh, after that, I, uh, I got an opportunity to work in a program to train the Iraqi army uh, how to use the M-16 at that time. So uh, I went to uh, Karkush. Karkush is another camp somewhere in Diyala. And uh, I end up going back to an area called Basmaya, 
they requested to have somebody have a mechanic background and can relay the language for the Iraqi people to use M1, A1 tank. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and that's what I get into it. I met some uh, expert tankers, amazing people. Uh, they they have to teach me everything so I could be able to teach it to somebody else yeah. through them. And uh, they, they took the time and they taught us uh, so much details about the the tank operation system, the ballistic system, and ballistic solution, how to create and all stuff. And uh, I, I started from there and uh, stayed with them till the end of the program. And uh, it was uh, by the end of 2000, by the end of 2011, early 2012. And that's where I uh, got my visa. So I came to the States in 2012 or March. So I finished my job with them. I think I took a couple of months to break and I just come to the States. When did you start thinking about coming to the States? On 2010, I was in uh, uh, Beth camp where we do this training program and many people applying and a friend of mine, he needed my help. He was like, well, I want to apply for this but there are forms I need to fill it up, but I don't know how to write. So I helped him. I write everything for him, and we applied for him. And he got the case number and everything. And as we're talking about it, he convinced me to apply for it. And at that time, I wasn't really thinking to come over and start. I was, I was having this dark thought about uh, uh, being old, being tired. I just want to finish my job and get this over with. And he convinced me to apply. He was like, if you didn't like it, just leave it. So uh, I applied and uh, things went too fast. And I got my visa before him. Oh, wow. he, really, he really hated me for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you got it uh, really fast because you served for four years in Fallujah. You replaced a translator who had been uh, killed in action, right? Yes, sir. So when I went there, I didn't know that. They came and they needed somebody to fill a job, and that's got some uh, uh, semi-classified information type of thing. And they couldn't hire an Iraqi local interpreter for this job, but at that time, they don't have a choice. The interpreter they have, he's, uh, he passed away. He killed an action. I never met the guy, but uh, I, I feel bad for it. Yeah, However, I, I, I didn't know that till I started the job with them and they told me what happened to him. And uh, I was like, it is what it is. So I, I get the job done for them and they found out I'm really eager to learn more and try to, I, I don't know, I always been eager to learn more and meet no more people, talk to as many people as possible. And that's how I end up uh, staying with them. The idea was just to work with them for a while till they find the right replacement. And uh, from there, uh, I just moved on with it. I mean, you are in a war zone and you have a team. And by the time you are part of this team and they trust me enough, just like as much as I trust them, at uh, this point is more than paycheck. It's more than I just want to get a job or I just want to leave and go to safer place. It's... You reach this point subconsciously. It's time we either make it together or die together. And uh, we we lost some good people, and uh, I'm I'm happy for everybody made it. Yeah, with, without sharing which units were there in Fallujah with you, how many different units came through there? Because uh, deployments for the uh, U.S. Army 
tend not to yeah. be more than 12, 13 months. You must have seen four or five yeah. come through there at least. Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, working with the unit that's detached with the other uh, Marines unit. So I was I was working for an Army unit that's detached with the other Marines unit. And uh, we basically worked with everybody. Whoever needed our service, we just go there and support them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, one of my favorite friends in the war, his name Justin Addison, uh, he was actually the one who took good care of me during the war. Uh, he always keep me behind him. He always been a productive, make, make sure I'm being a protected. And uh, he know I'm civilian, I'm not trained, and he also know I'm willing to be trained. So uh, we, we, we went together, we, we, we've been attacked together, we've, been, we've seen a lot. And uh, by the end of the trip, when I came to the States, he was the first one I called. Mm. And uh, this way I came to Williamsburg to visit him. And uh, I just came here and I never left. He's actually my neighbor. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> He's actually my neighbor and I meet him every week, every day, whenever we have a chance. That's amazing. I think uh, Daniel's thinking the same thing I'm thinking. We'd love to talk to Justin on this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure... He might be able to tell you more than I tell you about Fallujah. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, no. Mm. Yeah, he he knows what he can and can't talk about for sure. Yeah. No no question. Yeah. uh, How? uh, Go ahead, Daniel. Just uh, without going into detail um, about the specifics, uh, just for someone who doesn't understand the role of a a translator or an interpreter, were, were you mostly dealing with like interpreting documents or radio things? Or did you actually uh, go to meetings between people and kind of uh, do the translation live? It's, it's a combination of uh, all what you uh, explained. We started to uh, go out in the, as a unit. We walk in the city and we talk to people. Uh, we, we have something in our mind. We want to create friends. We want to introduce people to what we do in there. And... Uh, and that's that's led to meet the right people, the leaders, uh, and then we end up having meetings one on one with them. Uh, Sometimes documents, as we try to help the Iraqi army established, we help the uh, the Iraqi police to be established at that time. So uh, even some police expert from the states showed up there to train them. And we we always around this environment to try to basically uh, we are the only communication channel. You have all the technology, but you don't speak the language. And the majority of Iraqi people, they don't speak the language. So the, the only way to go through it is by having another human being with you. And if we do the job long enough, I, I, you reach the point when you know exactly what your team want to say or what they want to hear and your job to be as accurate. So it's more than language now. We have uh, the cultural uh, factor, which is, I mean, sometimes you say something, it makes sense. It might be funny here in the States, and it's so offensive back home in Iraq uh, or backward. Mm-hmm. They think it's funny, and if I translate it to you, you will be offended. So I always translate, and I tell them that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> or I translate, I was like, man, he's trying to stub on your nerve, and he said this and that. So uh, this is small details. It, it changed the whole concept of knowing where you are. 
So take any person and Man. I'm not sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it must be compl- like priceless to have somebody like that when you're in a country with a language you don't speak, with a culture that you're unfamiliar with. It, it is. It's so important. Like if you go to China right now and you don't know anything about Chinese, you are under the mercy of the Chinese people who speak English. But if you are somewhere and nobody in that town speaks English, you will be lost. You are by yourself. I mean, you are in the middle of big town, but you don't know anyone. So uh, it's, it's good to have somebody. It's, it's really imperative. I, I don't know how to explain it to you. Having someone know the environment, the cultural know what people mean. You can read between the lines and, uh, and explain it as good as you can. Yeah, that, that, new, think, that, that nuance is uh, important. Sorry, Daniel, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask if, um, do, you, do you think that that was recognized uh, by, the, by the U.S. Army or, you know, in, in getting your visa, do you think that you were appreciated for that role that you played? Yes, I do believe so. Uh, just the fact they opened the whole program, they call it a special immigrant visa for people who work for the U.S. Army faithfully in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you can check it online. I mean, I, I think it's still open now. Uh, if somebody work with a good record and you can prove it with the documents, uh, you have a chance to get the visa and come to the States and start over. So I, I think that's great, the fact they think about safety. Uh, we worked for the U.S. Army. Now, in Iraq, the Iraqi people, now they divided. Some people, they think that's amazing. This guy educated and he speaks two languages. Other people, they hated. This guy, he sold his country, and now he's a traitor, worked for the enemy. And you are in the middle. You have to figure out. So if, if you listen to either of them, uh, you lose. You have to listen to your own inner dialogue. You know you're doing the right thing. You go keep doing it. And if you reach the point and you doubt, I mean, like millions of Iraqi people, they think I'm wrong by working for the U.S. Army. But I think that's where the biggest challenge really uh, placed. It's, it's like, should you keep doing what you're doing or you quit because people don't like it? So, uh, I, I just decided to listen to my inner voice. I, I do believe I'm doing the right thing. In fact, I saved uh, uh, many, I helped save many Iraqi people as much as I helped the U.S. Army understand what they're saying because knowing what their intention, it will really, really help you deal with them. Honestly, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, enhancing communication and make, being a bridge across culture and language as ever being a, a bad thing or being wrong. Yeah, it's, it's also a different culture. I mean, uh, there there's many factors, uh, the, the culture, the region, different religion. Like some people think about it like, oh, you leave the Islam and now you work for Christian people. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> I, I'm going to make my own decision no matter what. And, uh, and that's, that's how things start to progress and people get polarized and... Uh, I mean, now if you listen to the news uh, in Iraq and Iran, and this, this Shi'is, Sunnis is getting crazier than before. And now Shi'is, Shi'is, between them, they have problems. And that's all going to the fact people always uh, take the common thought and they just listen to it. There is always somebody thinking for you. 
yeah, yeah, whether society or elderly tribe leader, religion leader, and there's always somebody do the thinking for you, and you have just to follow. And that's that's my problem with it. So that's one of the things I've always been critique about is why we have to listen to someone, no matter what. I mean, I listen to your advice, but I don't listen to your thoughts. I'm not going to allow you to think for me. And that's that's the difference here. Yeah, you're you're clearly an independent thinker, and yeah. I, th- I think you've lived an amazing life in part because you're an independent mm-hmm. thinker. Hey, so Muhammad, my favorite translator story when I was in Iraq. You ready for this? Yeah, sure. Uh, the uh, President Talibani, who was the president of, uh, of of the whether you call it the Kurdish region or Kurdistan. Yeah, he, he uh, was a Kurdish leader. Yes, sir. Yeah, when when he moved around, he had uh, a forty man element that would. Uh, protect him. It was basically his security force. Mm-hmm. And he would come to where, uh, in the general vicinity of where I was, and I was responsible for security in general terms. And uh, I got to meet the major that was in charge of, of that security unit. And he did not speak English. He also did not speak Arabic. He only mm-hmm. spoke Kurdish. And so every time I met him, I met him about once a month. So we met probably mm-hmm. nine, 10 times. I would have to say whatever I was saying in English to Talibani's chief of staff, who took my English, turned it into Arabic, and he would speak that to the sergeant major for that unit, who would take the Arabic and then speak it, speak Kurdish to the major. And this entire time, I'm looking at the major, while while <laughs> the, the, there are multiple interpretations happening for every two or three sentences I say, and then he would say two or three sentences, and we're looking at each other, but we can hear from the side. <laughs> Multiple language being spoken until it came back to English. It was fascinating. It's the most I've ever concentrated in my entire life. It's been like 15 years now for that story. <laughs> yeah. Almost? Okay. Yeah, almost. 15 years later. Yeah, it sticks with me, man. I, I want you to know that Talibani actually speaks Arabic. Well, I wasn't with Talibani. I wasn't yeah. with Talibani. I was with his, uh, his chief. Yeah. It was the major. It was the major who did not speak Arabic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought you talk about Talibani. I was like, man, no, 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 no. he probably messing with you. Oh, no, no. I, I know for a fact the major yeah. and the sergeant major were yeah. messing with me. But yeah, I, n- I never got to meet Talibani. He, he sounds like an amazing guy. And by the way, I echo everything you said about the Kurdish people. The ones that I met are amazing, awesome people. They are. Very cool. All right, so let's talk about you coming to the U.S. Or, Daniel, do you want to ask our standard question? <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's let's talk about the U.S. first. Um, I'm curious to hear what your impression was when you when you came for the first time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was a day. So, uh, well, by the time I'm coming to the states, I want you to understand. I met many people in the military, and they told me many stories watch the movies, you do everything, and you set your expectation based on what you see and know. But when I come in person and uh, went through the airport, JFK, and I uh, get another plane and I went to North Carolina, and that's where I started. It was uh, in Raleigh, and it was like a vacation for me every day. I mean, everything in you, Different environment. I mean, it's just amazing. I I look around. The air quality is different. <laughs> the bottom line is, uh, for me personally, when I come over here, I look around, and nobody's shooting at me, 
<laughs> I think I'm in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> if nobody yeah. should add to you. You are you are a happy person. <laughs> but why, it was it was amazing. Why Raleigh? My brother he came before me, and he was in Raleigh, and uh, I came to start with him, and uh, I stayed with him for uh, really a couple of months. And I came to visit in Williamsburg, visit Justin. And as I'm talking to Justin, Justin already talked to his uh, his boss. Uh, and he talked in Colonial Williamsburg Foundation here in Williamsburg. He talked to his boss. He talked to his uh, team leader. And I was there. Everybody come over to talk to me. They want to meet the guy he was serving with in Iraq. And they offered me a job. And I took it. That's the first job offered to me, first opportunity, I'll take it. I'm not going to make the mistake of refusing a job anymore. <laughs> is, is, do you still work there? I worked with them for a while and I found a better opportunity. So I just kept jumping to find where I can fit the most. So uh, I did multiple jobs ever since I come over here. And each job adds something to my knowledge, adds something to my experiences. And by the end, it's, it's, all, it's all positive. So... Uh, Coming over here from Iraq, obviously, it's a very different landscape. It's a very different culture. How were you uh, received? Or, and, and how are you received even now? I will tell you with my personal experiences. I, I talk to people every day. I'm, I'm a talker. I go out there. I smile, shake hands, and I, I don't know. I think it's in me all the time. I never, ever met the wrong person. I mean, uh, it's been here for eight years, and everybody I meet in my life, they are good people. Uh, the, the courtesy, the generosity, uh, it's just the nice, kind words, the small things that make your day. And I appreciate all that. I, I look for these opportunities. A small thing you say or I say, we make somebody smile, and it, it makes a difference. So... Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the nature of your question, how people perceive me. I, I think people open friendly. And they still. Uh, how do I perceive it? I was terrified. Mm. <laughs> I can't even talk to people. I mean, I know what to say. I know what they're saying, but I was hesitant. I was speechless so many times when I come. My first year, it took me a while. Justin has to be my translator. <laughs> <laughs> The one I used to translate for him. Every right. time I say something, with the pressure, stress, and nervous getting me, my accent goes so heavy and people don't get it. And <laughs> he have to explain it to them. That's what he meant. <laughs> uh, uh, that's cool. Turn the favor. <laughs> yeah, and he did a great job, I'm telling you. All right, Daniel, I'm going to yeah. ask our standard question. You All ready? right, hit it. Mohammed, have you listened to any of our episodes? Yes, I did. Okay, so the standard question is, if, imagine you were 25 again in this hypothetical, uh, and you have no responsibilities other than yourself. Would you rather join the military or do stand-up comedy, uh, military for a few years, stand-up comedy for a few months? I would, I would do what I did. I would join the military. Okay. That's yeah. an, that's another one for me, Daniel. Boom. 
Yeah, and you? just to just to clarify, I'm I'm not a stand up comedian. Uh, even though Paul, Paul keeps Paul keeps saying that he's the uh, uh, military answers are in his bucket and stand ups in my bucket. Yeah. I I don't think I ever claim to be a stand up comedian. So it's all I good. can't change. Yeah. I can't I can't change my answer now, man. I'm sorry. I feel bad though. <laughs> <laughs> he he wants to make both of us no. happy. <laughs> No, uh, I, I learned. Oh, I, learned I wouldn't. So much. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I think there's a, there's a delay. I, I was just saying I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't wish the stand up comedy life on anyone, <laughs> and I don't even know it that well. So it sounds hard. I, I don't know. I like laughing. I like make people laugh, but I don't think I'm good to stand up quality <laughs> material. But uh, I learned so much from the military, from people I met, uh, great people. Some of them, it's just always in my mind, uh, they, we're still in touch and communicate with each other. And some of them, I forgot their name, but I just remember their faces. I remember what they told me. And uh, all, all these things add up together. Uh, I, I think is the best school for a man to learn things is just to go to the military. Mm. However... You don't have to go to the military to serve your country. You can serve it from everywhere. Yeah. Mm. Tons of ways to serve your country. Yeah. Uh, question. Hey, so w- when I was over there, uh, I think the coldest it got was 32 degrees. I think it actually snowed uh, one day while we were there for may- maybe 15 seconds. Uh, it was pretty rare. I, I think it, it happens maybe once every 100 years kind of thing. But you were generally – you grew up in a very warm place, Right. No humidity, but still a very, very hot place. Coming to Raleigh or even Williamsburg, the winters had to be uh, brutal for you, right? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I had enough heat in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the first time I see the snow falling, and uh, that was uh, 2012. Actually, it's early 2013. uh, It was a snow, and this like half inch of snow in Williamsburg. And I, I just took a Jeep. That's the first car I bought. <laughs> and I was just driving around, just enjoying the snow and everything. And uh, it's just amazing you ask me now. I, I was thinking about it. I was like, wow, I see snow falling. Usually I see sandstorm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, man. Hey, so uh, you grew up Shi'i, uh, but you obviously spent... <laughs> Uh, a long time in Iraq uh, and you ran into, and, and you know, the history you, you're, you're learning more history, even as we speak. Uh, tell, tell us about Shi, Shi culture versus Sunni culture versus Kurdish culture and, and what it was like growing up amongst those uh, different yeah. cultures. Well, Kurdish are Sunnis. Kur- ah. Kurdish is part of the Sunnis. They, uh, but uh, I mean, as a Kurdish, that's a nationality. So they are Iraqis and Kurdish. Got it. And they can be Sunnis, they can be Shi'is, it's up to them. They are part of this society. But the majority of them are Sunnis. And they have a great relationship with the Sunnis politicians in Iraq right now. So uh, Shi'is, uh, let's go back in the history. Uh, so Shi'is, they follow Muhammad's cousin, his name Ali. And Ali he's supposed to be the first uh, uh, what they call the first caliph after Muhammad so uh, the Sunnis follow Muhammad's friends 
uh, Abu Bakr at that time. And that's where the first division starts because uh, Ali's supporter, they want Ali to be the leader. Abu Bakr's supporters, they want Abu Bakr to be a leader. And that's from everything went through. However, that's not the only reason. There's the interpretation for the Quran. It's also have some different different aspects. The way they uh, view the prayers, like in the Muslim practice, there's five prayers. So the Sunnis do certain five prayers every day, while she is the, uh, they interpret it in a way you can have three times to pray. There is two prayers in the middle of the day, and there is two prayers at the end of the day. You can have them combined. So, uh, and there's more details about it. I'm not really the right person to talk about the religion part of it, why they think this way, where this came from, like in a religion point of view. But uh, historically, it's started from that point when Ali did not became the caliph, which is the processor, what do you call it? Uh, I don't know how to explain this one. Which is the follower, like the successor. first leader after. Successor, thank you very much, sir. Yeah. So he's supposed to be the first successor, but uh, eventually he became one. So he became the fourth one. Mm, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. And that's what, uh, uh, what made people, like, they think he's supposed to be the first one, and we just keep following him. So whatever he do, and his son, and his son, and his son, they went, like, basically a family side now. So the family thing, it's, let's say, uh, it's like not the democratic way, like by inheritance. If your father or your cousin is uh, uh, the caliph, you have to be one. While the, uh, the Sunni side, they believed in the first election practice after Muhammad's die, and they elected Abu Bakr, and from there they start to do the election. That's, that's what the history say. However, when we talk about the election, it's also the, it's a deal-making, too. You'll be the first, you will be the second. So uh, th there are so many aspects of it. So uh, the Shi'is in the south and the west part, I would say the south and east part of Iraq, that's where the, most of the Shi'is, they are closer to Iran. Iran adopted the Shi'is too. So uh, that's where they have a closer relationship and they affected by Iran. Sunnis is the west and the north side, and that's include the Kurdish uh, they, 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 they different sect, and they mostly follow in the Saudi Arabia, because uh, part of their regions actually go all the way down from the west side to meet Saudi Arabia. So, uh, and that's what uh, people been accusing Saudi Arabia funding the Sunnis and Iran funding the Shi'is, so they will always try to overtake each other. Uh, nothing can approve this theory anyway. Uh, that's, that's basically the thing work. However, in the middle uh, of Alexandria, where I am, and uh, north part of Babylon, all the way to north of Baghdad, this area is like the overlapped area, the, 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 the conflicted area where the Shi'is and Sunnis live together. So in my youth times, I was growing up in a place with my friends in the college, in the judo, everywhere they, they they are sunnis and shis and mix and we don't even know the different i i never really noticed one of my friends he was shis or sunnis i mean now i'm thinking about it 
maybe I will make a mistake if I want to classify them. Uh, but later on, after the war, and uh, things got to get more violence coming to the country. Uh, people with weapon attacking here, explosion there, and it, it's just things start to polarize, and you you have to pick up the side. And uh, I, at that time, I was already working as a translator, and things get even worse and worse. And now I find myself without friends. I'm actually in a place where both sides of my friends, Sinis and she, they don't like what I'm doing. So mm-hmm. I'm keeping my secret and keep doing my job. Yeah. Wow. That Did you, a- uh, when you when you moved to uh, Kirkuk as a as a kid, that, that's mostly Sunni, right? So was that yes. was there anything? Uh, with you being different from everybody else, or did it also feel fine? Because, like you said, the Kurds are friendly. Uh, they are friendly, and it was fine. You don't feel you are different. And it's also, I was a kid at that time, so I'm dealing with the kids my age. And I think being child is beyond <laughs> being polarized this way. Makes sense. I hope so. Did you, yeah. you still have family in Iraq? Yes, I do. Do you, so do you keep in touch with them? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, friends, uh, brothers and sisters, my father is still there. Uh, occasionally, I am in touch with them, but the majority of the time, I will say like every once in a blue moon, we, we have a conversation. Uh, what's it like uh, over there? Like politically or? Just uh, the conditions of the country. What, what's the uh, the climate like? Like living standards, that sort of thing, and and politics. Well, the, the politically is chaotic now. The uh, people, the young people, actually went out in the street and protested last year on October, and uh, they their protest resulted on uh, uh, taking off the prime minister. And now we have another prime minister to cover up for him, and he's responsible to run a new election. People in the street, they don't like the Iraqi parliament because everyone in the Iraqi parliament, well, I will say the majority of them, they do have connection with the, uh, an armed militia on the street. Mm. So, uh, and, and they are corrupted people. So that's, that's a chaotic situation when you can't really work in a country where everybody in the power, they are crooked. So uh, that's on one side. Uh, and that's really led to have the economy situation went all the way down. And that's affected everybody's life. So people in Iraq, economically, they are not secured. Uh, And other than that, people are still going out. They're still working. They're still loving each other. They're still laughing. And it's it's fine. Life move on. But still, it's still with COVID. Yeah, even with COVID. And and unfortunately, COVID is... uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it did not teach Iraqi people to stop off being close. We have this culture. We always shake hands. And if you don't shake my hand, I'm going to be really offended. Uh, so uh, Iraqi people, they still struggle with this. They're still shaking hands. They're still visiting each other, talking. You know, culturally, when you meet somebody after a couple of days, uh, it's, it's so appropriate to shake hand and kiss on the cheek. Now, you've been there. I'm sure somebody tried to do that to you. <laughs> oh yeah but but yeah uh, uh people are still doing that and that's not helping the covid situation so, 
So this mm. social distancing is not going to be easy to enforce in there. Gotcha. So are they having a, a worse time with COVID than, say, us in the U.S. because of that? I really can't say it, like, definitely, uh, but I don't really know anybody that I know from my family or friends. I never really get the word that somebody get the COVID. So if you go to the statistics and you see things and you hear things, I mean, first, you can't really rely on the statistics there because we don't have the system, to reliable system to get it. So it's basically whoever comes to the TV from one hospital saying different number. Um, but uh, in general, people, uh, I mean, they, they, they live with it. They just live with it. Yeah. So, so Mohammed, we were talking, uh, I guess, a few weeks ago about mm-hmm. coming, you coming on our podcast, and you had mentioned that you are engaged to be married. Is that still true? Uh, yes, we're working on it. <laughs> yes, sir. Do you have, do you have a date? Uh, no, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> ah. <laughs> no, we, we always, we always, we have, uh, uh, so uh, I met Teresa on 2012, actually, the first year I came to this country. And uh, ever since we are together, and that's, the kids, that's awesome. it, it was it, it was uh, I don't know, it's a weird situation. <laughs> uh, we met, but uh, the kids they used to be shy; they don't like stranger. But first time they meet me, they are just open to me, and I just love them. And by the years we moved in together, two thousand fourteen. And uh, ever since we are together, we do everything together. So they are my favorite kids. I love them like my own. And they are the reason I'm not setting up the date yet because they have the priority now. (laughs) (laughs) So me and Teresa, every time come up with the idea, maybe we can do it this year. Uh, We have so many reasons to postpone it because we take care of them, school, things to do. So it's it's all get kicked out. (laughs) So I'm working on it. I'll let you know, though. How how old are the kids? So Gabe just turned uh, eleven. Uh, Sabrina, she's fifteen, and Jocelyn is seventeen. Okay. And we've been together for the past eight years, I would say. So they were babies when I had the first time. Yeah, yeah. And and they they, they grow up. I I can see myself in them. I can see my influence on them, and they are amazing. Uh, Jocelyn just to start driving. She got a new car. Well, a new car for her. But it's new to her. Anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so Daniel's uh, dating a young lady, and he's been dating her for a while now. Um, mm. Do you have any advice for how he should uh, propose when he eventually proposes? Uh, I'll, I'll tell him what I did. and He can do it or leave it. What do you think, Daniel? <laughs> I think that's great. I think Paul could have just yeah. asked, how did you propose? <laughs> that's okay. Now, uh, uh, I, uh, it was the Thanksgiving and uh, she was cooking and I did everything to make her mad. Mm. Everything a woman don't want you to do that day, I just did it. Interesting. She asked me to do this. I'm not doing it. She asked me to do that. I'm not doing it. And she was really mad that I called her and she was so irritated and I gave her the ring. And she was conflicted in a way. She don't know. 
she should slam me on my face or give me a kiss. <laughs> That's a great story. I should have done that. It's, it's different though. Yeah, because you don't know what you're going to get, right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I know it's not going to be slam on the face, but yeah, you got to be careful though. <laughs> Did she say yes right away? Yes. Okay. She said yes, she got the ring, and uh, ever since we, we are blessed. That's awesome. When I asked my when, when I asked Thank my you. wife Muhammad, she just uh, started laughing because she laughs when she gets nervous, and oh, she, yeah. laughed, she laughed for what felt like I don't know five minutes. It was probably more like ten seconds. And I said, "Well, are you going to answer the question?" And then she finally <laughs> answered the question. Yeah, she was she was so lost for that second, which is really amazing. You look at her; she don't know what to say, she don't know what to do because she's really mad. <laughs> from everything I've said and do, but now there's a ring on the line, so. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. It, it was an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a genius strategy. So, hey, uh, what do you do for a living these days? Uh, right now, I'm working as a salesman in the home performance company. Okay, uh, nice. Do you like um, it? Oh, I love it. I uh, I started with them as a worker, and uh, I made my way, became a team leader, and uh, they found out I can do more. I actually asked them if there was anything I can do more. <laughs> I want to learn how to be there, and they gave me the opportunity to be in the sales force, and uh, I, I had uh, a good success with them, and I, I just enjoy every day. I, I love my job. We should probably mention uh, how we connected. It was through uh, Ed, right? Yes, yeah. And uh, I, I don't really know what he was talking about for a moment. <laughs> he said, I met a guy from the military and he want to talk to you. And he was like, probably somebody know you <laughs> from the military. He got me confused. But uh, yeah, when, uh, when I talked to him with more details and he explained it to me, I was like, you know what? I would love to meet you. <laughs> And then see if there's anything I can do to support your uh, podcast. No, we we are very appreciative of uh, you joining us. And I, I'll tell you, when you sent the email uh, through the, our website, Daniel and I were very excited to uh, read your email, and we were we were super excited to uh, to talk to you. So I'm glad we had an opportunity to do that tonight. Uh, it's a pleasure, really. I enjoyed every moment, and you guys are amazing. I I like your podcast. I uh, see the other videos. And uh, I, I like the ingenuity, like something in you. We just meet average people and we learn from them. And uh, I learned so much from people you talk to. It's beautiful, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing, really. Uh, you, you feel like you know these people. I probably meet them today. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, and thank you for giving us the education. And I don't know if anyone's told you this before, but you, you really have a similar uh, vibe as uh, Sean Connery the actor for James Bond. Mm -hmm. Have you ever uh, seen like him in any movies? Oh yeah, I know him really well. I saw his movies, I saw everything, but the first time I hear it, somebody referred to me though. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's the way that you end your sentences. It's very Sean Connery-esque. So uh, take, yeah, take that for what it is. But I, I really appreciated talking to you, Mohammed. It was a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Hey, Mohammed, uh, please do me a favor and tell your uh, family and friends that are still in Iraq to listen to this episode uh, because I love getting downloads from across the globe. And we don't, I'll we do my a, best. 
I'll do my best, but I'm going to end up translating everything we said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that may, may be more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> I'll do my best, sir. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Mohammed. Thank you for having me. You guys are amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.